From coast to coast to coast, you are listening to Terra Informa. My name is Trevor Chow Fraser. This week, part two of our live show from Mech Bike Fest. You can find the first part on our website, terrainforma.ca. Coming up right now, though, we've got more stories about cycling. How our cities shape it, how we're pushing back, and how cycling makes cities fun. So let's just put this in gear, and off we go. Bike lanes, somewhat unbelievably, have become one of the most divisive issues in Canadian cities. They cost a lot of money, but advocates believe they save lives. How can anyone argue the price on that? Well, Matthew Dance and Conrad Nobert think part of the problem is data. City planners have it, the rest of us don't. City planners can see the most dangerous streets on a map and know where bike lanes would help most. Matthew Dance wants to share that map with the world. Here's my conversation with Matthew Dance. Hi, thanks. So with uh, Conrad Nobert, you've been building a map of cycling collisions on Edmonton streets going back almost a decade. Uh, I was wondering, how did you come up with the idea for this map? Um, the, the map is sort of a, a thought experiment work in process where we were just looking to see what what kind of um, data were available that documents uh, when and where people were uh, injured or killed by, uh, by cars, pedestrians and, and cyclists. And um, we found dribs and drabs here and there. And then we, uh, Conrad came up with the brilliant idea of uh, doing a FOIP request. So we, we FOIPed the data from the city of Edmonton and after a little bit of back and forth, we were given a, a spreadsheet of data and we're working with uh, Darcy Reynolds to uh, to build the map. Darcy's a GIS whiz, and he's uh, he's really into the data right now. And we're we're trying to get something online as soon as possible. Yeah, so um, that's a bit of the process of putting together a map. What are the what are the ingredients you need to to make this map worthwhile? Ah, uh, we need a good data set. We need an engaged uh, an engaged group of people interested in in looking at the data. And we need, uh, frankly, a, a city council and, and administration that's willing to have an open and direct conversation about what the policy entails and what we can learn from the data and how that might inform uh, a cycling policy in the city. Yeah, so you, you say that it needs an open data set. Um, yes. What, what is open data? I have no idea. <laughs> um, open data is uh, data that is freely available uh, for citizens to use to uh, to do whatever with. You can build a map with it, you can build an app with it, uh, you can challenge policy decisions that whatever administration is making with it. So the, the idea of open data fits within uh, a broader concept of open government, where, where governments are working with citizens as partners to develop the best policies for an urban area or a province or whatever that, that could possibly be developed. So citizens are, are considered partners in the policy development process. Right. And how, how would that change things using open data? 
Well, honestly, open data are the open data are the data that citizens pay to be collected and to be held, and it's the data that when it's not open, uh, that city might use to inform a policy. So. The way that, the, to the best of my understanding, the way the policy development process works is city council wants to develop a new policy around something, they'll ask the administration to develop policy options and those options are informed by data. Well, as citizens, as an engaged citizen, I just want to have access to the same data that the administration has access to, to see whether or not they're making the same decisions I'm making, I would make, and if not, why? So that would be really integral to uh, a democratic system. Yeah. Because you... You want to be. Uh, you want to know why your your city is making the decisions it is making. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if we if we have questions about that, it's really nice to know um, what the basis of the policy is, so that we can ask very detailed and specific questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's okay. let's try to ground this in the the, okay. the project at hand. Okay. Which is mapping cycling collisions. Yes. Uh, or cycling incidents. Not just cycling. So the data set goes okay. back to two thousand and five. And it is uh, granular spatially, which means that we have very detailed locations of where incidents happened between vehicles and cyclists and also between vehicles and pedestrians. Oh, okay. So we're, we're able to, to look at um, where these things occur. Yeah. And, and why do you think it's important to have a map of those incidents? Um, well, I, I, I think the map... The map is one piece of the larger puzzle that might tell us where our urban infrastructure might need some improvement, some changes, and the map might lead us into a direction of, uh, of how the design might look. So if we're finding that pedestrians are getting hit at one specific intersection, what is it about that specific intersection that could be changed to make pedestrians more visible to vehicles and maybe uh, give pedestrians a, a stronger right of way when they're trying to cross the street? Right. You, you've been publishing, like this project is underway, yes. it's in the middle, but I know on your blog you've published a few uh, preliminary maps using some of the data. I think some of those maps already show um, Maybe there's a bike lane going in off White Avenue, and your map shows that maybe this is not going to serve the process of making it safer on White Avenue after all. Yeah, so one of the questions I have, um, how big is the catchment? How far will cyclists go out of their way to get onto a bike lane? And um, so that, that catchment area then would define kind of the, the safety zone. And right now the data that, that I saw it's not necessarily saying that a bike line on White Avenue would be best, but maybe, maybe something on Gateway Boulevard. So, what what are the what are the uh, processes that the city went through to determine that 83rd Avenue is the way that they want to go? Like, why? Why there? Yeah. What what are the data that they're what are the data that they're using showing? And is there data that they have that you don't have yet? Is that part uh, of the problem? Not since we got the data set that goes to 2005. I'm pretty sure that we have all the interactions between motor vehicles, cyclists, and pedestrians for 10 years, oh, which wow. is pretty cool. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So now that you have this full data set, uh, what are you hoping will come together in the next, uh, in the next year? What, what do you hope to come out of this project? Well, honestly, like my, 
my aspiration is pretty modest. I want a beautiful map that exposes these data in a meaningful way so that people can go and have a look at them. And I'd like that in the next couple of months. And then I'm hoping that will spur conversations about what we want, what we need, what are we doing, is it enough, what could be more, yeah. right? So I, I, I don't necessarily want a policy goal, I just want a lot more conversation about what what's going on in the city. Yeah. And you yourself are an avid cyclist, I understand. <laughs> uh, I used to be. I have a, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and they're not quite ready to cycle um, distances. So there's a, a lot of uh, a lot of longer drives with them. In, the, in our neighborhood, we bike ride with training wheels and we walk. But if we want to go anywhere of any distance, we're driving. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm 45 and I owned my first car, first car when I was 40. So I, prior to that, I was on my bike all the time. Yeah. Well, for your kids, when they're a bit older and able to bike around the city, what, what are you hoping the city will look like at that time in terms of its bike infrastructure? I'm hoping that my kids can ride to school, which is five kilometers away, and not have to be on a road next to cars. I'm hoping that my son, when he's 10 or 12, he's able to ride that 5K and not have to come into direct contact with the vehicle. Yeah, I would love that. Well, I hope this map helps us get to that point too. So thank you, Matthew Dance, for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. You just heard from Matthew Dance, who, with Conrad O'Bear, is approaching bicycle safety from a wide angle. There's another initiative in Edmonton that approaches the issue at the smallest scale, when the issue of bicycle safety is at its most personal and most raw. Here's my conversation with Chris Chan from Edmonton Bicycle Commuter Society. So I've got here with me uh, Chris Chan from Edmonton Bicycle Commuter Society. And uh, so I wanted to talk to him because whenever I uh, park my bike on campus, it's at a bike rack. And right beside my bike will be a bike that's painted completely white. And I always kind of wondered what it is. And, and then I learned that it's called a ghost bike. So Chris, what is a ghost bike? Ghost bikes are bikes that are painted all white, uh, and we set them up as memorials to um, commemorate uh, cyclists who have been killed uh, on streets in Edmonton. Uh, how did the project start? Uh, it started, I believe, in uh, St. Louis. Uh, no, mm, somewhere in the States. <laughs> I'll go okay. with that. Uh, as as basically a, a roadside memorial for, for some, anyone killed while riding a bicycle on the streets. And how did, how did it come to Edmonton? Uh, one of our former presidents uh, knew about the, about the ghost bikes uh, elsewhere and, and thought that we should, we should start doing it as right. well. So uh, 2007 was the first year that we started setting them up. And we actually had a few right away that we, that we had to go out and, and install uh, because there was there was quite a few uh, fatalities that year, mm. 
since then, we've uh, continued installing them over the years. Uh, we don't lay blame, and it's not a matter of assessing like, oh, well, was the cyclist at fault in this case? We don't we don't make any of those judgments. It's just a matter of something happened. It shouldn't have happened. Um, and we want to put out this memorial to, to kind of commemorate their life as well as to recognize the, the issues that we face. Uh, and so we put out our 16th one earlier this year. Mm. Can you talk about the symbol of the ghost bike? Like, wh what, does it, what does it mean to you that it's a bike com painted completely white and locked up on the side of the road? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a pretty stark image, and, and people really, really notice them. Um, uh, families really tend to appreciate them uh, and it's interesting because uh, you know it's not even uh, always whether or not that person identifies as a as a cyclist per se uh, you know they just happen to be riding their bike that day uh, but but it still has a lot of meaning for for families to to see that and have something to kind of gather around and 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 um, you know, you'll see you'll see images of ghost bikes covered in flowers. Mm -hmm. One time we had a we were we had a complaint from a member of the public about a ghost bike, and when we went to go remove that ghost bike, uh, as we were in the physical process of taking it down, someone pulled up in their car and, and started yelling, uh, and it turned out to be a relative of the person who had been killed, and they were they were they didn't want us to take down that bike. Uh, they really appreciated seeing it there on their on their commute. That's, uh, that's a striking story. Yeah. Um, maybe can you talk more about like what what does it mean to be marking the urban landscape this way? Why why is it important that we can see where people were killed on their bicycle? Yeah. There's a lot of different uh, places where we've installed ghost bikes from highways to to really urban uh, dense routes with lots and lots of cyclists that use them. Uh, and I think, you know, part of the part of the reason why we put the ghost bikes up is just as a memorial for for somebody that has been killed, um, and and all of the reasons why you'd put up any kind of memorial for for somebody. Um, but the other aspect of it is is indeed to raise awareness and and of the fact that. Um, as all as road users, whether you're driving or, or cycling or walking, we all share this same space, uh, and we all need to watch out for for each other and take care for each other. Uh, but also that, uh, you know, when you're riding your bike uh, in Edmonton, uh, it's very unlikely that you'll that you'll have any kind of dedicated infrastructure uh, where you can feel safe, where, where that infrastructure was designed with your needs in mind. Um, you know, that, so you see people riding on sidewalks, which were never designed for bikes, and you see people riding on, on roads that, that were never designed for bikes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it really speaks to the need for a safe, uh, dedicated space where the rules are clear, the space is uh, clearly designated, and people can feel safe Without, without having to feel like they're either breaking the law uh, by riding on sidewalks or feel like they're, they're constantly being threatened and, and in danger. Yeah. I mean, when you say that, and, and earlier you said that you've put up the 16th uh, ghost bike since 2007 yeah. this year, um, like, is, is cycling at Edmonton dangerous? You know, there's on average one, maybe two fatalities per year for for people riding bicycles, uh, and and you have 
tens of thousands of trips every day made by bicycle. So by and large, it's, it's, it is a very safe activity. Uh, certainly if you're just looking at public health impacts, um, if you're talking about, oh, should I drive today or should I ride my bike? You're going to live longer if you ride your bicycle, uh, just flat out uh, by, by a significant amount through, through physical activity alone. Um, but there is that perception and that fear, uh, and it's a totally understandable fear when you're riding on roads and, and you have cars passing by at high speeds or close by. Uh, while it may technically be safe and your chances of collisions are, are low, especially if you are following the rules and, and, and riding defensively, um, if we want more people to be able to comfortably choose to ride a bike, uh, we have to make that safe infrastructure where people can actually feel safe and, and don't need to be super aggressive or assertive to, to have that confidence uh, to, to ride on the streets. Yeah. I mean, for you as someone who is personally involved in the project and personally painting those bikes, um, what, what, what does it mean to you? Like, do you get uh, something that helps you deal with this uh, sense of danger, this risk? even though you know it's not actually that risky, but how does it help you deal with cycling in Edmonton? Um, it's always a struggle for the first while after I install a ghost bike. Um, there, was a, there was a time where I had a ghost bike kind of next to my garage at home and it was just sitting there ready to go and, and it really, it actually upset my parents uh, whenever they came to visit because they, they saw this ghost bike and they know what it means. Um, and, and actually, it was only there for a couple of weeks before I actually ended up having to go out and install it someplace. Um, and it, it's always on your mind for, for, for the first while after you install that uh, ghost bike. But, you know, most drivers in Edmonton are, are quite courteous. Nobody wants to hit uh, someone riding a bicycle, uh, if, if only for insurance reasons. <laughs> they, they, don't, they want to avoid that collision, right? Uh, so I, I feel pretty, pretty good about riding in Edmonton. You know, you pick your, you pick your routes. We're, we're making progress. We have a, a protected bike lane being installed on 102 Ave uh, next year, starting next year, and, and also down 83rd Ave. Uh, so Edmonton is making progress, and you'll have that dedicated, physically separated uh, place for, for bikes to be. It's a small start, just two streets in, in the entire city, um, but but it's it's a start. Yeah, maybe that speaks more to my last question. How, 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 what, what can we do to ensure that you never have to put up another ghost bike in Edmonton? Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to infrastructure. You can make inroads with education and with, with other, other kind of designs and, and, you know, you can talk about equipment and you can talk about everything else, but really where you're going to get the most bang for your buck and, and be the most effective at, at, at uh, both making things safer for cyclists and as well actually for pedestrians and drivers, uh, uh, but also just addressing that issue of, of do you feel safe riding? Uh, and, and how do we get more people able to, to have that option and have that choice? Uh, it really is bike infrastructure and making really solid, um, dedicated bike infrastructure, uh, really high quality infrastructure that connects well as a full network. So we've got two streets right now, but unless you happen to live and work or go to school along those two streets, um, uh, 
then then you're still going to have to end up riding with mixed traffic at some point. So building out that network and having really high quality infrastructure, all of the studies across North America have shown that's really the way that you get both more people cycling, um, but also having really reducing the, the risks uh, involved. Okay, thank you for thank you for sharing. Thank you. Um, I was Chris Chan, executive director of Edmonton Bicycle Commuter Society, uh, explaining what a ghost bike is. So the next time you park your bike next to one which is painted all white, you know what it means. Thank you. You're listening to Terra Informa, broadcasting on community radio across Canada and available as a podcast on iTunes. We're bringing you stories from our live show at Mech Bike Fest. As part of the day's festivities, we wanted to hear some of your memories about your bikes. Here's what you had to share. Can you share your first bike memory? Uh, Building my bike in my backyard in February that I got for Christmas. It was a red bike. Um, got it as probably like four years old. Probably used it probably till I was eight. And then my sisters used it. And then after 10 years, uh, just fell apart. And uh, parents had to buy us all new bikes. So it was good. My first bike was when I lived in Ottawa and uh, unfortunately got stolen. And I borrowed a bike from my friend who spent a little bit of time in Germany. And that bike was stolen also. So I had lots of bikes stolen over the years. My first bike was green, pretty small. Didn't have anything on it beside wheels and the frame. Yeah, I can remember my dad getting really frustrated because I, uh, you know, was trying to trying to ride my bike and you'd fall over. And of course, like any kid, I don't know how old I was, three or four, and you don't experience success at something, so you don't really want to keep doing it. But luckily, he, uh, he stuck with it, and I stuck with it, and eventually I learned how to ride my bike in a house in North Edmonton. And you're doing the same for your son now? Yes. In fact, in fact this is timely because he didn't really want to have a whole lot to do with it because he was falling over. Uh, so we got him riding on the grass, but anytime he'd fall over, he just wanted to quit. And uh, the last 10 days or so, now we can't get him off his bike. He's like a world of difference. So he just did the obstacle course here as well, and he's quite good at it. So. Okay, and what is your favorite place to bike? Probably used to be along the along the seawalk in Vancouver. Uh, pretty much the entire valley is fine, good, uh, but over by Gold Barn, uh, Strathcona Science Park. We quite often, there's a group of guys, I don't go all the time, but uh, they will start at the museum and ride over to Pioneer Cabin and do some of the trails in through there. North America would be the uh, Highway 101 down the California coast. First one would be Ottawa. Ottawa has beautiful trails. And the second city will be Quebec City. It's a gorgeous city. It's the one that looks the most like one of the European city in, in North America. Thanks to Natalie, Aaron, and Tasmia for milking the crowds for those memories. Now, Bike Month just might be bigger in Edmonton than anywhere else. Of course, I'm biased. In any case, a unique Bike Month tradition in these parts is Bike to the Symphony. 
Danielle Dolgoy works with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra and sat down with her co-worker and one of the main organizers, Molly Staley. My name is Molly. I work with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra and Francis Winspear Center for Music. My role here is executive coordinator, so not really event planning formally. But on my spare time, I do a lot of theater work, I do community arts workshops, and basically I think my motto is I just want to do cool stuff. So how did you get involved in this ever-so-cool Bike to the Symphony? Well, I'm doing my arts and cultural management diploma at Grant McEwen right now, and a part of the project management portion of it, you need to work with a local organization on a project start to finish, put in the the work on the charter and the implementation plan, and then test the results. And um, Yeah, I guess it's just project management 101, and I thought it would be fun to take on something at the symphony since I worked here and could utilize and leverage the people here <laughs> to help me with my project. So for those who don't know, what is Bike to the Symphony? Bike to the Symphony is our annual event in partnership with the Edmonton Bicycle Commuter Society. So groups of riders will come and usually congregate off of the, the society's sort of home base off White Avenue, and it's in support of Bike Month. And so riders commute to the Winspear Center, and then they come see a late-night performance conducted by our music director, and they get to be outside and celebrate music and healthy living. So it's a great partnership we have with them. So what are the, the essential things that our listeners need to know about this event? Well, what they need to know is that it's $24 for a ticket, and that includes the ride, whether you want to participate in it or not. And this year, we decided to go with a bit of a theme. The late night is Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue and Concerto in F, and they're some of Bill's favorite pieces to conduct. So the entire ride, including the pre-activities and the post-concert sort of party in the lobby, are all going to be 1920s themed. So there'll be costumes and swing dancing, and it's just going to be a lot of fun. And why do you think events like this are important? I just think it's important to... For more established organizations like ourselves to get out in the community and be engaged in more than just the arts, education, healthy living, wellness, and community engagement, any sort of those practices, as well as it's summertime in Edmonton, and it's such a beautiful time of year for us to be out and about and <laughs> engaging with Edmontonians. So uh, I think it's important for us to be involved in any sort of municipal events as much as we can. What would you say are um, some of the more um, unconventional or unique elements that people will be getting out of this ride that they might not get in something like a critical mass ride? Well, for this, since it's it's so unique and personal, a lot of the, the riders happen to know each other. They're a part of a larger cycling community. It's has less of a parade feeling and it's more just a genuine summertime bike ride and in the end you get to have a drink and listen to some music so I think it doesn't feel as serious or as um, there are certain guidelines as well as we're partnering this year with a few different restaurants so Under the High Wheel, Three Boars and Mercer Tavern are all getting involved with us to put on some promotions at their locations or serve dinner beforehand or and they're going to work with us to help get people involved. Plus, I think engaging with local artists to perform at the post-concert event in the lobby is also unique and it's going to be fun for this event. 
Sounds like a good night. So how can I get my tickets? Well, you can just go to edmontonsymphony.com and it's on June 12th, so you can just go to concerts and tickets, June 12th, Late Night Gershwin. And if you want to join in the ride, just come meet us at 7.30 at Under the High Wheel, which is on the Roots on White Building on 81st Avenue and 103rd Street. Yes. And the ride will start at 7.30. Awesome. Thanks, Molly. Late Night Gershwin at Edmonton's Windspear Centre is on for one night only, June 12th. The ride starts at Roots on White at 7.30pm and the concert begins at 9.30pm, with the party lasting long into the night after the show ends. And speaking of which, this show is at its end. Thanks to everyone who helped put together the live show at Mech Bike Fest. Tasmia Nishat, Aaron Carter, Carson Fong, Natalie Rowett, Daniel Dolgoy, and me, Trevor Chow Fraser. Today, I've also been your host and producer. Terran Forum is a production of CJSR Radio in Edmonton. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. The bike is gonna rust if they don't begin to pedal. Cause when rain hits the metal, the parts that are wet will corrode if the drops settle. But there's no rain falling from the pink and orange sky.